It's nice to see all of you here. It's a joy to see young people. Anxious to see Jesus come. I tell you the um, fulfillment of Bible prophecy that we've been preaching for the last 160 years is coming to pass in front of our very eyes. Unfortunately, in North America, and I have three fingers pointed at myself, Okay, I'm not pointing fingers. We're pretty much asleep. While the storm gathers. And I want to tell you that neither of these political parties is going to save anybody. So beware of how much energy you put into that. And how much time you put into it. Those are the politics of divide and conquer. We're in restoration and redemption. And saving people for eternity. And Adventist young people need to have a passion for the lost. How many people went to Christless graves last year in your town? Let me put it another way. How many people went to graves as Baptist and Catholic and Methodist who could have, had they been reached, given their entire life to the advancement of the third angel's message? I'm going to use some PowerPoint this morning. My apologies to my preacher. I love his preaching. And I love the way he has the Word of God. He's a master of the Word of God. And I'm going to do something I shouldn't do. But God has raised him up, giving him to us as a gift. And I praise God for him. And you will need your Bibles this morning. If you come to my seminar, you're going to need your Bibles. And I'm going to talk about, I'm going to take two times to take five parts of Galatians and put it in two. We're going to study the book of Galatians together. Is that okay? Get there. But today I want to talk about... I want to talk about this morning, put this up here, I've entitled this, I am a jealous God. You have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 20, you know well the, the text, I've got it up here and perhaps we can use this to quote together. And uh, this is a New American Standard. I, I Usually my preaching Bible is a New King James, and I study Bibles, a New American Standard, and I love just for reading a New International. But we're blessed, but you need good, solid translations. Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. Let's quote, quote it together. You shall not make... Come on, you can do it with me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. The heart of this commandment, God says, I am a jealous God. In our society today, we sometimes we don't think about 
that being such a good thing. We think about petty jealousy. There's a bad jealousy, but I'd also like to suggest to you that there is also a good jealousy. And I'll get into that in just a little bit. But I want to establish this fact that the Bible talks about our God being a jealous God. And it's both in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And uh, if you have your um, Bibles, turn, if you would, to Exodus chapter 34. And you'll need your Bibles in and around this because I've got just excerpts on the screen from Exodus 34. This is the scene, of course, is the golden calf. Moses is back in the mountain. He's come face to face with God. He's seen it for himself. And now he says, God, I'm, I'm going to need some help. And he needs some assurance. God has said, Moses, I'm not going with you. I'll send my angel. Moses comes back and argues with God. Lord, I cannot go forward if you send only your angel. He in essence says to God, I must have you. But to have God himself to lead his people is a dangerous thing. So I want to look, if you don't mind, starting with verse Five. Exodus, I'm sorry, yes, Exodus 34. This is that great moment that no human being that I ever know has ever experienced where Moses pled with God in the midst of all of this arguing and wrestling and praying and interceding, saying, Lord, show me your glory. God says, you can't see my face because if you do, you'll die. But he said... Uh, I'll let you see my back. And there in that cleft of the rock, perhaps two great rocks in that cleft of the rock, God takes Moses and he puts him there. The closest a human being has ever come to seeing the glory of God, God withdraws his hand, takes away the veil, and passes before Moses declaring these words. From the back. Verse 6. Proclaim to him the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him. And proclaimed. The Lord. The Lord God merciful and gracious. And long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. The gospels contained in those verses. There's that great paradox that we will study all through the ceaseless ages of eternity. Of how God can not spare the guilty, and yet spare them. And that whole process is focused in his only begotten son. He didn't spare the guilty because the guilty had a substitute step in, took our blow. But I can't go there right now. Verse 9, get the picture. And then he said, if I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us. 
There it is. There, there's the request. The Lord himself to go among us. You think what it might be to have the Lord himself to lead you? The personal God to actually lead you. It was God himself in that cloud. And even though we are stiff-necked people, I pray go among us, even though, even though we are stiff-necked people and pardoned our iniquity and our sin. Now here's God's answer in verse 10. Behold, I will make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as not seen before in any nation. The last part of it says, and I like the new American standard here, rather than the King James that I'm using, the new King James for, I, for what I am about to do, see if I've got it right there, I thought I had it right there, is a fearful thing. Is a fearful thing. This says an awesome thing. What, and then if you will go on with me looking at verse, verse 11. It says, observe what I've told you. Verse 12, take heed to yourself. Unless you make a covenant with the inhabitants, they become a snare to you. And verse 14, you will worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. In other words, he's simply saying this. You go into the land and you are not, when you wipe out those inhabitants and you see their gods and their idols. And let me tell you, idol worship has been designed by the devil to have a particular appeal to the human heart. And I want to tell you that it's coming roaring back into America today. And it's coming in ways that you don't understand. We're going to get into some of that before I'm done today. But he says, I am a jealous God. If you fool around with those idols, you fool around. You are going to provoke my jealousy. And I want to tell you, you don't want to provoke God's jealousy. What does God mean when he says, I'm a jealous God? Jealous in its right sense means that God is demanding of complete, 100% devotion. Not 99%, not 98%. He demands 100%. Why is God jealous? Why is he jealous? Is he just arbitrary? Does he just say, I, like to be je- I just like to be jealous. I just want you all for myself. I don't want to share is that what he's doing? Everything God does is built on the truth. And here's the truth. Know therefore, Deuteronomy 4.39, Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And here it is. And there is no other In other words, God is jealous for you to relate to him. And he's not willing to share, as Elder Skeet said, with so-called gods. Because there aren't any. Including Lucifer. As powerful as he may be, he is not God. And he will, God will not share his people with anyone. Apostle Paul has something very interesting to say about idols and uh, 
I find it very interesting. Should have brought my notes up. I have notes that are not on the screen. Means you can't see everything. I don't want to lose some of it. Apostle Paul says on idols, this is New Testament. I wish you could read the whole, I wish I had time to take you into 1 Corinthians there and take you the whole time. The time does not let us do that. But he goes on to say, he's talking about the Gentiles. By the way, this is a big appeal to Christians. Should we eat food that's been offered to idols? Does it matter? I mean, I mean you know, if I go down to the grocery store, does it matter whether it's been offered or not? I'm hungry, I just want to eat. Big issue in the Christian church. Doesn't seem to be a big issue today. No, but I say the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to what? They sacrifice to demons, not God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? This is the Apostle Paul who taught righteousness by faith, justification, sanctification by faith. It is he who brings up this whole idea that we still have, as Christians, a jealous Savior. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? What is jealousy according to the dictionary? The dictionary says it's intolerant of rivalry or unfaithfulness. It's hostile toward a rival or one who believed to enjoy an advantage. It's vigilant in guarding a possession. Now, there's a bad jealousy. Let me talk about bad jealousy for just a second. The elder brother and the prodigal son, when his father comes to him and says, aren't you glad the boy's home, your younger brother's home? And the son says, look, you never did any of that for me. He was jealous of his younger brother. Is that good jealousy or bad jealousy? It's bad jealousy because it's based on selfish motives. There's um, good jealousy, however. Is it a good thing to guard the nation's freedom? I'm talking more about philosophical. Aren't we glad to have the... First Amendment to the Constitution that guarantees freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Is it a good thing to be jealous for one's health? How about guarding the faith? The Bible says the New Testament contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. How about guarding marriage? Is that a good thing? A marriage between a man and a woman, there is a covenant. And that marital love, and I'm not talking simply about the physical, I'm talking about the emotional, everything that goes within that covenant. That marital love belongs only in that covenant. It cannot be given, and if it was offered, it should not be taken, and it should not be stolen. Some of you are married, and some of you aren't. Let me ask you young women who are not married. How would you feel about a husband? How would you feel about marrying a husband who said to you, you know, sweetheart, I really love you and I don't want to be selfish. So, you know, whatever you want to do, if there's other boyfriends, bring them along. No, there, there is a pre 
understanding that there is an exclusiveness. Let's say you just got married. <laughs> Amen. Beautiful. Let's say you just got married and you come home from the honeymoon and you're setting up honeymoon, you're setting up your pictures. And your wife comes along and she says, honey, I'm, here's a picture, our marriage, our wedding. This is the big picture. Now, I've had a lot of fun. I've got three other boyfriends I had a lot of fun with. I've got just little pictures of them. And I, I just didn't want to forget, so I'm, I'm setting them right here. I want to ask you if we're in trouble. I'm telling you, we're in serious trouble. It's not a laughing matter. That happens. I know that's kind of a facetious saying, but you get the point. And the point is that if something like that is going on, there is going to be serious problems. I mean, after all, ladies, would you really want to marry a man, the man of your dreams, who wasn't jealous over you? Tell me. Would you really want to marry a man who says, I don't mind sharing you? I'll tell you, if he's got that kind of attitude, he doesn't really love you. I would like to tell you that his jealous love He's jealous in the right sense. Not, I'm not talking about this petty stuff, you know, where she walked by the wrong... I, you know what I mean. By <laughs> I'm not talking about petty stuff. I'm talking about real stuff here. The degree of his jealousy shows you the degree of his love. And vice versa. God relates to his church as a husband to a wife. Now, men, we may have a little harder time understanding this, but if we think about it a little bit, we can get it. Think about it from God's standpoint. The ladies can think about it from the woman's standpoint. God has a holy jealousy, and I know this is not popular in some circles but God also has a holy anger if it's violated. You violate his holy jealousy and there's going to be a holy anger. God has exclusive rights to his church. He has exclusive rights to us individually, but he also has exclusive rights to his church. And he will not give it up without a fight. That's why there's a great controversy. I don't think God likes war. I think every day his heart is weeping at the casualties. I don't think we have any idea of the pain that's going in the Father's heart. The only reason he has drawn his divine sword, which is unlike him to do, the only reason he is unsheathed 
the weapons of heaven is because to abandon us is to lose all of us. And there comes a time that even God himself must unsheath his holy anger. You can find the examples in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can find Elijah with Ahab and Jezebel. The dogs licked up the blood of Ahab and the dogs ate Jezebel. You can find Herod whose bloody hands took the life of James and would have taken the life of Peter, the apostles. The Bible says an angel of the Lord. It doesn't say the angel of the devil. It says the angel of the Lord struck him and he was eaten with worms. You can go to the New Testament in the book of Revelation. You can hear Jesus talk to his church. And he warns Ephesus and all of us that if you persist in your ways, I will remove your candlestick. You know what that means. You can hear his word saying to the church of Thyatira, either you get rid of that woman Jezebel or I'll step in and throw her and her children into the bed of death and suffering. Are you, if you don't like this sermon, if you don't like those illustrations, argue with Jesus. Don't argue with me. Listen, there's nobody that loves the grace of God more than I do. I hope not anyway. I'm so grateful for his love. I'm so grateful for his grace. I'm so grateful for his mercy. But my dear friends, we'll never understand the mercy of God. Unless we understand and look over the cliff at how awful sin is. And why God has a holy reaction against it. So why is God jealous? Look at my notes here if you would. He will not share his church with nothing. Nothing cannot create or give life. He will not share his church with demons who masquerade as gods. If he shared his church promiscuously with demons, he would be giving up his church to utter and miserable destruction. He could no longer be called compassionate, gracious, abounding in loving kindness and give the one he claims to love over to demons. He would five. He would no longer be telling the truth to his bride. All relationships are built on trust. I appreciate the point this morning. Both justification is built on your trust. Both sanctification is built on your trust. It's a huge, simple understanding of both New and Old Testament of our relationship with God. Are we going to trust Him or not? Are we going to trust ourselves or somebody else? But God is trustworthy. He's telling us the truth. He's not going to share us with nothing. Six, he will not spoil, he will not spoil his spiritual offspring by allowing demons to share in their spiritual conception. And if he did so, he would no longer be true to himself. There's just no way God is going to share his bride with demons. Hallelujah. You do not want to arouse his judicial anger 
or his jealous love. The greater the love, the greater the anger when violated. All of this flows from God's holy love. When I was a boy, I, uh, I had a sweet southern grandmother. And uh, we lost her a few years ago. I'm looking forward to seeing her in the morning of the resurrection. So my mother's side. And Grandma was always just, I mean, she was a sweetheart. Always was. One day, my little brother and I were playing out in the sandy driveway at the old farm there. And all of a sudden, Grandma comes running towards us, yelling and screaming. And, and two little boys just looked up to her and went, we couldn't believe it. This couldn't be Grandma. I, we were just stunned. We weren't afraid. We were just stunned. And all of a sudden, Grandma comes right along beside us, and she takes this hoe, and she starts beating the ground. And I looked over there, and she was cutting a copperhead snake into about a thousand pieces. <laughs> I, I want to ask a question. Why was Grandma so angry at that snake? <laughs> you should have it figured out by now. The anger demonstrated toward that snake was representative of her love for her grandboys. You understand that? It's God's holy jealousy. Let me put it this way. Hear the sequence. Love gives birth to God's holy jealousy. God's holy jealousy gives birth to his holy anger. His holy anger gives birth to his mercy, which is the result of his love. Oprah Winfrey, you know about her, don't you? She's a big new age. She's into religion big time now. She's into the new age. And somebody said, why are you going? How can you reconcile this thing, this new age stuff with, with your Christian upbringing? And she went on this thing about how she was sitting in a Baptist this congregation. And she heard the preacher talk about that God is a jealous God. And that turned her off. And since then, she decided she would, she would do something about that. And so she got into this new age because it didn't set well with her. The real truth is that she refused at that moment to accept the word of God as the authority in her life. As one of my friends said, you know, we don't sit in judgment of God's word. It sits in judgment of us. We either accept its authority or not. I can't explain everything in the Bible. If you say you can, you've got other problems. Because it's divine. There are mysteries there that we cannot fathom. And I get some of those once in a while. Sometimes they're, they're paradoxes. I, I just sit them back in my little storehouse. Say, God, when, you, when you're ready, show me that. But I don't throw the whole Bible out. I don't throw the whole gospel out. And that's what we have going on in Christianity today. And sometimes we have it going on with some brothers and sisters among us. And they sit in, oh, they say, well, you know, God couldn't ever be jealous. He couldn't ever have anger. He couldn't ever have any of that kind of thing. And, and uh, so they throw all of that out. I just, I just don't accept the Bible. I think that's the safest thing to do. 
this is uh, not an Adventist pastor, and he responded to, to her. He's responded to um, Oprah Winfrey about her diatribe that God cannot have jealousy. And this is what he had to say. Pastor Larry DeBurn, the author of The Church on the Rise, Why I'm Not a Purpose-Driven Pastor. In the real world, people, even in Hollywood celebrities, can't personally cope with infidelity of their lives. End or marriage partners. First, they become jealous. Next, they separate. Then, if married, they hire, hire lawyers and file legal grievance for their share of the estate. And finally, they are divorced. Then he goes on to say, If this is how the Hollywood set plays it on earth, how can any of us be so hypocritical to suggest that for all the right reasons, our faithful God has no right to be jealous over spiritual adultery committed by his covenant people? Way to go, Larry DeBurn. The Bible's very clear. It says, you are not to make yourself an idol. I want to talk about this idol business for just a minute. What is an idol? An idol is a false, an image worshipped as a god. It's a false god. It's an object of passionate devotion. Ezekiel's a visit of, ab of abominations. If you want to read something very interesting, you want to understand why God is so upset with ancient Israel. I've just been reading through that old, he old uh, part again about the kings and First and Second Samuel and so forth. Go read Ezekiel chapter 5 and 8 and chapter 8, 14. Just for the quick here, just let me just show you what God saw. This is in his holy temple. This is in the sanctuary. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is where the table showbread was. This is where the candlesticks are. This is in the courtyard where the altar of burnt offerings are. This is where this is going on. So as I live, declares the Lord, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable idols. Are you saying, what, did they actually take it into the actual temple itself? Yes, so don't be surprised if people bring the same stuff into God's church in these days. Number two, the gel idol of jealousy. In other words, he says this thing is provoking me to jealousy at the north gate. And then he mentions two of the people. By the way, God does call some people by name. Jazaniah, son of Shaphan, and with the 70 elders. These are the leadership of Israel. Worshipping carved image in the temple court. Out there beside the brazen altar that depicted the sacrifice of Christ. These guys, 70 elders of Israel. Verse 4, then he saw women making cakes and weeping for Tammuz. I don't have time to go for that. The women were big time. I want to make a... I want to make a detour here for a minute. You know, when, um, when Adam saw Eve with that fruit in his hand, he was put in a very difficult position. Uh, you need to know that the Bible holds Adam responsible for the fall and not Eve. At that moment, though, you see, Eve was deceived by the serpent. At that moment... He thought he had to choose between Eve and a life without her. At that moment, he failed to trust that God might have some solutions. And so, you know, Eve was the crowning act of God's creation for this earth. She was not only just physically beauty, beautiful. She was emotional and every other thing. 
you, you can't imagine what she was like. She came fresh from the creator's hand. And God had created in Adam a desire for all of that. And Adam loved her. He should have loved his Lord more. I tell people, I just baptized a couple of young people the other day, and I said, you know, I want you to know that I love, you need to love, your, love the Lord Jesus more than you love your mother. So your mother was sitting there. You need to love, you know, I love, I love the Lord more than I love my wife. I love the Lord more than I love my own mother. I love the Lord more than I love my children. Because I'll tell you what, their greatest security in my love is because I love him most. Now, here's my sidetrack. You ladies have a lot of influence. Be careful how you use it. Somebody should have said amen. <laughs> and then here in the number five... In the inner court, 25 men with their backs to the temple, worshiping the sun. God had had it. Here's Ezekiel 23. For sake of time, I'm going to skip that. I go to the Apostle John. Is this going to be a temptation to the New Testament Christians? As it, you can find in the book of Revelation. Apostle John talking about the Christian church. Said the rest of mankind were not killed by these plagues. They did not repent of the works of their hands. So as not to worship demons. And the idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood. Which can neither see nor walk. I want to ask a question. Has idol worship swept into the Christian church? It was only just a few short, maybe a hundred years later. That idol worship... 200 years later, begins to sweep into the Christian church. It comes in both in Roman Catholic and Byzantine. But I'm going to use this morning what we are surrounded with, which is Western Catholicism. Does the Bible teach Mary to be venerated or worshipped? Now, I know that in this crowd you know the answer to this. But I need to spend just a moment here. And it came about, listen to this, this is Jesus. This is Jesus teaching a large crowd of people. Think about it in the light of Mary worship today. And it came about when he said to these things. By the way, people worshiping Mary, they see images on a garage door. They see images on an overpass. I mean, people, are, and they go there by the thousands. I saw a picture of a, a woman, a garage door had some kind of image of Mary on. And she's taking a little baby up there and saying, kiss it, honey. Now listen to Jesus. It came about when he said these things that one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that at which you nursed. What she said is, How wonderful is the mother that gave birth to you. And Jesus didn't hesitate a second. Now you would have thought, he would have said, Oh, thank you so much. I do have such a sweet, wonderful mother. But he did not. Is she a good woman? Absolutely. He didn't waste a moment because he knew where this was. He could see where this would take. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Well, I don't have to tell you what the, for the sake of time. I'm not going to talk about the Council of Trent. What it says about it, if you want that you can, later, I can show you the contrast between Mary said about herself and what the papacy says about her, how she says she needs a savior. I can tell you, as I was listening on Catholic radio, 
and Lansing, Michigan, as they were telling about how the, these images were weeping and crying and bleeding, and there's all kinds of stories by the hundreds and thousands around the world about these images, etc. But I want to go to the Hindus for a moment. I sat beside one on the plane coming over here. This is a very interesting event. It's called the Hindu Milk Miracle. Some of you may remember, it was on Thursday, September 21, 1995, the news swept around the world of an extraordinary miracles of milk-drinking Hindu statues. Never before in history has a simultaneous miracle occurred on such a global scale. Television, radio, and newspapers eagerly covered this unique phenomenon, and even skeptical journalists held their milk-spilled spoons to the gods and watch these skeptical guys humbled as the milk disappeared let me ask you how much defense are these skeptical journalists going to have before the wonder working powers of the enemy of souls don't depend on the newspapers to give you the truth or the internet that all started, by the way, because one man in the middle of the night in India had a big impression that, that the idol needed some milk. And so he went and got some milk. This is miracles. You can't explain it. Nobody could explain it. They, they tried explaining it, but nobody really had any good answer to it. So just because you see Virgin Marys and images in Roman Catholicism doing these miracle-like kinds of things doesn't mean that the pagan ones don't do it as well. Here's a Hindu teaching. It is not that Hindu worship their idols in vain. The idol is just a symbol, a form, which the mind, which with the mind can be connected and concentrated on. The ultimate reality is beyond the senses. Roman Catholic teaching, that honor which is given to them, talking about the idols, is referred to as objects which they represent, so that through the images which we kiss and before which we uncover our heads and kneel, we adore Christ and venerate the saints whose likenesses they are. Same teaching. Let me tell you this. That while Roman Catholic bishops have been bringing idol worship back into America with a vengeance, Protestant and evangelical Christianity have been bringing another idol into the church. David Paulison, not a Seventh-day Adventist, Westminster Theological Seminary calls this new Western gospel the therapeutic gospel. He notes five elements. The need for love, the need for significance, the need for self-esteem and self-confidence and self-assertion, the need for pleasure, the need for excitement and adventure. And what I'm simply saying is that there has been, and some authors have noted, non-Adventist authors, there's been a huge shift in American thinking, religious, Protestant, evangelical thinking. We have now shifted from a God-centered worship to a man-centered worship. So the focus is, when I go to worship, what's in it for me? What can I get out of this? And we don't go there to worship God. I want to say this kindly. Worship is not about you and me. It's about Him. And He decides how He will be worshipped. 
You do not as the creature, nor do I, have the prerogative to tell God how we'll worship Him. The minute we do that, we have switched into a man-centered worship. Francis Schaeffer calls it the great evangelical disaster. Because of time, I'm not going to go into all of that. Here, by the way, is the declaration of the Cambridge Declaration. These are not Seventh-day Adventists. But this is worth going to just point. Today, the light of the Reformation has been significantly dimmed as the Bible, biblical authority, biblical authorities have been abandoned in practice as its truths have faded from Christian consciousness, the church has been increasingly emptied of its integrity, moral authority, and direction. As evangelical faith becomes secularized, its interests have been blurred with those of the culture. Question and answer. Is that having any impact on us as Seventh-day Adventists? Is it having any impact on our thinking? The result is a loss of absolute values permissive individualism and a substitution of wholeness for holiness recovery for repentance intuition for truth feeling for belief chance for providence and immediate gratification for enduring hope the alliance of confession confessing evangelicals also ask all christians to give consideration to implementing this declaration in the church's worship ministry policies and evangelism for christ's sake amen so let me tell you there are some voices in evangelical christianity listen god still has many many children out there in other churches someday he's going to get them all together you know well you know, they say that a good sermon makes you mad. <laughs> Dr. Holmes. And then it makes you sad. And then it makes you glad. So I'm about to make some people mad. May the glory be to God. I can't talk about everything that's going on in the worships today, but let me talk about music for a second. This is This is... I hope you love me when I'm done. If you don't, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> and it's not because I'm going back to Michigan. It doesn't matter because the only one I really give an answer to is the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, I, I want to, you know, obviously, I want to be your friend. But, you know, preaching is dangerous business. This is not a Seventh-day Adventist. This is Dan... Lucarni's book, Why Left Contemporary Christian Music Movement. Let me say this. There are a lot of new songs. I don't think the greatest gospel Christian music has been written yet. I don't think the greatest sermons young people have been preached yet. And I don't think we've seen the greatest movements of Christianity moved yet. Listen, as I said beside the dean of the seminary, we were talking at one of our ministers' meetings. I said to him, the future of the church is not in worldliness. The future of the church is in a return to primitive godliness. Amen. Let me say something about liberal and conservative. Can you handle this? I know it's hot in here. Can you, I know I'm overtime and all that kind of stuff. I'm just, I just might as well go ahead and get into all the rest of the trouble while I'm at it. But <laughs> Let me tell you something about this conservative liberal business. That is a red herring. 
When Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you, all the conservatives sat on their hands and the liberals jumped up and cheered and applauded. And then when he said, don't do it again, then all the conservatives jumped up and they cheered and applauded and the liberals sat on their hands. And you got young people saying today, well, you know, the church is liberal over here. It's conservative over here. Maybe if I could just, you know, if I could half keep Sabbath, I could get it right. I, I, I must be all right if I'm on the middle of the road. Forget the middle of the road. Let me tell you what the real issue is. It's not conservative. There's conservatives that are going to split hell wide open. You need to know that. And the same is true with a lot of liberals. But what we've got to have is not just truth over here and loving kindness over there. What we've got to have is truth and loving kindness together. We don't give up one or the other. The issue is not whether you're conservative or whether you're liberal. The real issue is are you faithful? You faithful to the Lord Jesus? That's all he's going to ask when he sees you. He's not going to ask, were you conservative? Were you liberal? The issue is, were you faithful? Were you faithful to his word? Were you faithful to him in being obedient? Did you put your trust in him? Were you faithful? By the way, don't we husbands ask our wives to do the same? Come on, brothers. You lost your voice. We want our wives to be faithful. How about it, ladies? You want your husbands to be faithful, don't you? He goes on. This is, uh, he, he goes on. This, okay, this is the music deal. Firstly, he says, I could no longer, and this is, he hits it right, I mean, he gets right to it. Firstly, I could no longer accept the premise under which was girding the contemporary music uh, philosophy. Our key premises were that music is amoral, God accepts all music styles, and no one should judge another's preference or taste. Have you ever heard that before? As I dug into the Bible to prove them right, instead I saw that they were man-centered, illogical, and misrepresentations of basic biblical principles. Secondly, When I saw what the Bible teaches about true worship and what it really means to be in the presence of God, I became sickened at the way my generation so glibly used profane and vulgar music accompanied by vulgar dress to offer up worship and praise to a holy God and no one involved seemed to notice what we were doing. He goes on. Acceptance doctrine is so pervasive in some fellowships that Christians are no longer allowed to question another Christian's behavior. If you confront another in love, you will be accused of judging them. If you dare quote chapter and verse from the Bible, you will be called a Pharisee. If a church has any practices that step on the toes of anyone's personal preferences, then it is considered to be a legalistic church. In this new church of acceptance, 
Showing tolerance for worldly affections and behaviors is far more important than exercising biblical discernment. He's not finished. When we brought rock music and all its musical cousins into the church service, we invited along with it the spirit of immorality. In fact, he goes on to say, he said, I had to get out of it just to save my marriage. And, and listen, there's some variety in music. God likes variety. Am I right? Amen. But there's a good variety. I say music's like food. Some of it's like unclean food. It should never be touched. <laughs> and some of it's probably not the best, but you can eat it. And some of it's just plain old normal food. And then there's the best. Yeah. We ought to keep working toward God's ideal of music. And I didn't say that was opera, by the way. You know, Spirit Prophecy condemns that too. <laughs> Thought I'd add a little balance because I can just hear the critics. I, I think there are principles of godly music, and I think we can figure that out. I don't think God left us in ignorance. All right, let's go and listen to this, this guy. Worship is not looking up and feeling good. It is bowing down and feeling lowly. It is certainly biblical to feel happy in Jesus. But now I realize that a good personal feeling is not part or the object of biblical worship. When we try to feel an experience of affirmation from worship, we are not worshiping God. We are worshiping our own egos. We have set up an idol in God's church when we do that kind of thing. And we will provoke him to unhappiness. I am now convinced that God will not accept our worship when it is offered with music styles that are also used by the pagans for their immoral practices. If I am wrong, why was he so harsh in judging Israel when they sacrificed to him using the pagan high places and rituals? He finishes by saying he is a jealous God. If you grasp this principle alone, it will change forever the way you lead a worship service. The true heart of worship is the heart that bows before God and submits to his word. No more. No less. Well, I want to finish by saying and returning to that our God is a jealous God. We cannot take that lightly. I want to say the whole scenario of the book of Revelation ends with the jealous Jesus coming for his faithful bride. There are two women in Revelation. One of them by the name of Babylon says, I am really the bride of Christ and he really loves me and he hates you. And by the way, there are going to be all kinds of demons parading themselves in the end of time telling that the faithful bride is really the harlot. And that we're the real faithful bride because we have the stamp of approval from God himself. Didn't you see the apparitions? Didn't you see the demonstrations? Didn't you hear Jesus over there in Israel or wherever? 
If you don't think this thing's going to get tight and rough, I don't think we know what's about to hit us. But Babylon is utterly destroyed by the hand of God. God. Jesus does two things in his jealousy. He shows up and spends two chapters, by the way, in the book of Revelation on the destruction of Babylon. He utterly destroys this woman who stands up and says, I am really yours, but I'm sleeping around with all of the kings of the earth, and you don't really mind because you're so loving, so kind, and so nice. And he says, no, I'm not that loving, and I'm not that kind, and I'm not that nice. And the other one is that while this wicked woman, Babylon, is trying to destroy the real faithful bride whom he loves, he comes, destroys the wicked one, and saves his dear one. I want to tell you that before all of this is finished, that Christ's church, the Seventh-day Adventist church, I love this church. This is God's church. Warts and all, it's God's church. By the way, God's church down through the ages has never been perfect. But we're going to see, you know what I mean by that, because of what we are, where we've come from, But before Jesus comes, Christ's church is finally going to put on her wedding dress. Now I know, brothers, this is a little hard sometimes. But remember, God is trying to speak to us and help us to understand His relationship to us and how precious it is. And the most precious relationship He has to illustrate on earth is the relationship between the husband and and his wife and his bride. Which of us did not thrill when we saw our wife standing there that moment, that day, in her wedding dress? I remember marrying my daughter not all that long ago, I guess. I remember how beautiful she looked. I tell you, a lot of work went into that wedding. Be sure of this. Be sure of it. I will say that again. Be sure of this. There is going to be a mighty revival of primitive godliness such as the world has never seen. The question is, is will you and I be part of it? God's people will move into line. I don't care what your eyes see and your ears hear. The prophet's never been wrong. And she said it. Then, then countless millions, countless, I believe hundreds of millions. There's 7 billion people on the earth. Today, 7th day, only 15 million. There's got to be an explosion like which we've never, ever seen since Pentecost. A hundred million would be a little tiny speck of that. Countless millions will find the real meaning of the real Jesus. The biblical Jesus. The sick and the sinful will hear his voice and experience his healing. The whole earth will be lit up 
by the presence of Jesus in the person of his compassionate bride. Yes, his bride will successfully prepare for her wedding. Filled and moved with unspeakable love for her groom, she fills the earth with her righteous acts. These acts of faith becomes her wedding garment. Jesus is coming on a white horse. To get his bride. And he's full of jealous love. 